Good evening. Glad to have you join us on 10 Ways to Improve Your Preaching by Sunday. Um, I am Dr. Jay Wagoner, and I am here at Fellowship Baptist Church in Willow Spring, North Carolina. It's a place where I pastored for nearly 30 years, and they've graciously allowed me to come here and uh, do this video from my website. All these guys here know who I am. They don't need an introduction, but for the sake of those of you that will be watching on the website, let me just quickly say I've got two master's level degrees, Master of Divinity, Doctor or Master of Religious Education, and then a, a Doctor of Ministry degree. Forty years of pastoral ministry experience, and I've been preaching for 48 years. So I want to talk to you about preaching. These are not something that I derive from an academic study, but from years of experience doing it. And I sense that there's a lot of individuals that could benefit from what I've learned. And I just want to pass along what is my perspective for you. Now, I say it's not from an academic perspective. It's, it's not. It's from a practical ministry perspective. But obviously, there was a lot of academic training that went into preparing me to preach for those years. So I've been indebted to those, uh, those men uh, who performed that function and, and gave me that opportunity through their expertise. Preaching can only be distinguished from teaching in that it is a little more formal and it doesn't usually involve any one-on-one -on -one interaction with students. Otherwise, I consider them to be the same, just different aspects of communicating the Word of God. But preaching as a profession requires a gift you find that gift in Romans 12 and verse 7, where Paul is listing the gifts, and one of those gifts is the gift of teaching. So whether you're a teacher or a preacher, if you have the gift of teaching, then you should be well equipped. That doesn't mean that that gift should not be developed. It will need to be developed through a lot of study and effort and a lot of experience. It doesn't come as a full-blown supernatural ability that you can walk up and be a great preacher or teacher the moment you start. But you go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, and you look at the qualifications of a pastor, you're going to find that a pastor needs to be able to teach. It's one of the qualifications. I know there's some who interpret that in the sense of saying that a, a man who is... Uh, Seeking to be a pastor has to meet the qualification of being teachable. And the word can carry that idea. But almost all the good, com good translations and commentaries will clue you in on the fact that it more appropriately here means able to teach. And it's used that way in the, in the, you know, the broadest sense. So, what is the gift of teaching? Well, I'm not going to go into that tonight, but I am going to refer you to a scripture. It's in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 16, where it reads, A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. Now, that in its, that in its interpretation and application from the days of Solomon means if you bring a gift to a king or a great man, he's going to be more apt to listen to what you have to say or what you need to ask or request. But I think it's a legitimate application to say if, if the Holy Spirit has given you a gift and he's given all of us at least one, and you use that gift to benefit other people, then you are giving away a gift. And that should then produce someone or hopefully many people who are willing to listen to what you have to say. So that's important. Gifts, though, are discovered through use. 
It begins with the desire placed on your heart by the Holy Spirit. But they must be developed. Preaching is something that you are compelled to do if you have the gift. Something that you were literally born again to do. Something that you desire to do. That's why in 1 Timothy, before it lists the qualifications, it says, if any man desire to be an overseer, then it gives you the qualifications. But what we have to give as a gift to the body of Christ needs to be the best that it can be. You don't, you don't, we're, we're right on the Christmas season. You don't give someone a Christmas gift unless maybe some of us guys do this. You don't buy someone a Christmas gift and stick it in a paper bag, right? You, you, you make it look as good as you can. You wrap it up. Now, uh, my wrapping would uh, be about equivalent to a brown paper bag, so thankfully I have someone else to do that. But we need to make our gift as best we can. We need to develop it. And as we do that over time and we focus and concentrate on that gift, we will be able to achieve what the Holy Spirit intends for us to achieve in the hearts and lives of people. We've got some preachers here tonight and some teachers and folks involved in ministry. And especially for those preachers here tonight and those watching on the video, let me say this. Preaching is the most important thing you'll ever do in the ministry. That, that's my opinion. I, I'm not sure how many people these days would agree with that. But if you look at what we're supposed to do as preachers, as pastors, and you really think it through, I don't see how you can dispute that. So concentrate on your preaching. Make that all it can be, and then whatever time and effort you have left over to devote to other aspects of the ministry, let that come second. And if you'll do that, you will be effective. In fact, if you do that, if you preach well, if you make the sacrifice to do so, your congregation will overlook a multitude of other faults. You deliver on Sunday morning what they need, and they walk away saying, wow, that was just for me. I really needed that. They'll overlook a, you know, a multitude of other faults and other areas of your life where you're not so accomplished. And preaching will be the means of your greatest influence. Think about it. I mean, just take any church. The pastor gets up and preaches every Sunday, unless he has a guest, you know, every Sunday of the year over and over and over again. And he not only will do it more than anything else, in a sense, but he will also reach more people at one time each time that he does do that. So it will be uh, the thing that gives him his greatest uh, impact, as far as I'm concerned. So now let's, let's move on to what we're talking about here tonight. And some of the Individuals are here. If you have a question along the way, uh, just ask and we'll, we'll deal with it. Otherwise, I'm going to go on through these. Ten ways to improve your preaching by Sunday. Number one, let's start with this. Plan a preaching calendar. In other words, sit down on a yearly basis and plan what you're going to preach for that year. I never really liked doing that. So I would plan preaching calendars more on a quarterly basis. That's fine. But I kind of would always have a general idea of what I was going to plug in on that next quarter. So I map out, say, 13 sermons, and then maybe not do the whole year. But you have to have a plan. If you do not have a plan, you'll soon run out of anything to say, and you'll be sitting around through the week scratching your head saying, what in the world am I going to preach on Sunday? And that will drive you crazy, or at least it drove me crazy any time that I did not have a plan in place and know what I was going to preach. Now, you can allow for holidays and plug those in. There'll be some special sermons along the way. But other than that, plan on comprehensive biblical coverage. In other words, 
plan to preach some from the Old Testament and the New Testament. Plan to preach some from historical books, some from poetical books, some from prophetic books, and so on. You want to have a balance to cover the entire scope of Scripture. Now, you can't do that in one year. So what's your plan moving forward year to year? That's what you have to consider. I would say avoid topical sermons. Now, I, I haven't always avoided topical sermons. I have preached a few, but there have been very few in 40 years. Because if I decide to do a topical sermon, then I've got a whole lot more context to have to deal with. Because a true topical sermon is not about just, just coming up with an outline out of your head and, and then going and figuring out all the cross-references that go with it and, and just you know go through those cross-references as you move through the outline. Literally, you, you, if you're going to do that, you're going to deal with the context of each one of those scriptures. So you're not going to use 10 verses for point one if you've got a topical sermon. So if you're going to make a topical sermon with three points, use three contexts. Uh, that that's uh, the way I was taught to do that. So I just pass that along. The best thing to do, I believe, is to preach consecutively, consecutively through books of Scripture. Now, if you preach through the book of Isaiah, it's going to take you more than a year. So uh, on long books, I would say preach through sections of books. Preach through you know, so many chapters, and then when the outline of that book kind of changes, you can go to another book, use some variation, bring that in. Later on, you can come back and pick up where you left off in the longer book. Uh, that's what I did, but, but still, I had, you know, when I finished on Sunday, I knew on Monday what I was doing. I knew where to begin. It was already settled. You might argue, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Wouldn't he, you know, does that leave him out? How does he lead you to preach on this or that? If he, well, look, if he can lead you to pick one sermon every week, he can lead you to pick thirteen or twenty-five. If you know what's, if you know the content of the text, then you're going to know what's there if that's what your congregation needs or whatever. So, uh, you can you can still be you know, flexible within that structure too. As you preach through books, don't get stuck on, I've got to preach, you know, I've got a book with 12 chapters out, I've got to preach 12 weeks. No, don't try to take whole chapters, chunks. Your, your text itself will determine how long your sermon will be. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So plan your preaching calendar. Number two, analyze selected texts. That means once you know what you're preaching on, I, I just uh, taught an adult Bible class on Philippians chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3. And uh, I was filling in for a teacher that had to be gone that week, and he typically did longer chunks, but it, I looked at it and I said, Philippians 3, 1 to 3 is, a is at a critical juncture in the book of Philippians, and we need to settle down and really understand what Paul's saying here. So... What I wanted to say and what needed to be said to transition into the practical part of the book of Philippians from the doctrinal part uh, needed to be done very carefully and, and over just a, a short text. That text may be, in some cases, one verse or a half a verse, but more likely, and generally speaking, it's going to be three, four, five, six, maybe sometimes seven or eight verses, but not 25. You're just not going to be able to handle that probably in sermon because somewhere within 25 verses, the topic's going to change to something else from what you started on. So once you know what text you're preaching on, at least where to start, what you need to do is analyze that text. And I think the best way to do that is diagram it. Uh, think eighth grade English diagramming sentences. And if you do not know Greek, diagram it in English. If you can use the Greek, I, and I always diagram in Greek. I don't diagram as much in Hebrew, but I can do that some as well. But when you diagram, it forces you to identify what's the subject, what's the verb, what 
what modifies the verb? What is the object? If it has a direct object, what modifies that? And you can look at it and you have a picture of what you're going to preach. Uh, I oftentimes would take my diagrams and label all the words on there, what they were, verb, participle, infinitive, you know, so on, prepositional phrase. I would use color-coded coding to help me visualize it on there. I'd put different verb tenses in different colored pencil colors. And sometimes I'd just pin them all up on a bulletin board because they would be long and you need to connect them all together. And then you back up and look at it and you've got a picture of what that text is saying. The most important thing to do would be to identify and parse the verbs. Understand Greek verb tenses and identify what tenses and what verbs are in that section that you're going to teach. Now, how you know where to stop and start a sermon is going to be determined by those verbs. You wouldn't, you wouldn't start a sermon somewhere between a prepositional phrase and, uh, you know, the verb... I mean, not very often would you want to do something like that. The verbs are what is communicating the action. So those verbs are very, very important. After you've done that, then identify the other grammatical relationships, prepositions, conjunctions, infinitive, participles, nouns, and so on. But once you identify those main verbs, you've got a good idea what your main points are for that sermon already. Now, you can utilize Bible study software, which will give you already diagrammed Greek sentences. And I highly recommend that because trying to do it yourself is a very long process and is very, you know, time consuming. And it's just tedious work. Uh, you can also just buy online access to the whole New Testament diagram. And that's what I use. So I just print it off. And then I do my work right there on that sheet. But analyze the text. You have to do that. In particular, you have to do that when you come to the New Testament epistles or when you're looking at the book of Proverbs or something that uh, is just giving you information. Now, historical books where you have long stories, you don't need to do that so much. Analyze selected text. Number three, consult commentaries. Now, if you've already analyzed the text, which I would suggest you do before you look at commentaries, then when you look at commentaries, it, if, you, if you choose good commentaries, they, they will be a check on what you discovered when you did it yourself, or they'll help you pick up something you missed or give you an understanding that just didn't occur to you. But you need to begin with exegetical commentaries. An exegetical commentary is one that deals with the original text. Now, there's lots of good commentaries that are expositional, and they're very helpful. Uh, they're more plentiful. But as you get further along in your studying of the original text, you'll want an exegetical commentary. The one that I really use a lot is uh, an author by the name of Linsky, L-E-N-S-K-I. He's a German author, wrote many years ago. He deals with the Greek in an incredible way. Another book series you'll need is uh, A.T. Robertson's Word Pictures in the New Testament, which deals with the Greek. And there's other, there's other commentaries that do that. Use your expositional commentaries, such as John MacArthur's commentaries, although he does deal a lot with the Greek. He's not completely an exegetical commentary because those basically are his sermons. Uh, but they're good, and he doesn't skip over anything. Commentaries are notorious for skipping over the very thing you really need to know because it's something that's not so easy to, to deal with. Uh, he, he, doesn't do, he doesn't skip over. Linsky doesn't either. Yes, Jim? How do you know the difference between an exegetical and an expository commentary? Other than just the fact that you told us. <laughs> well, okay, if you, if you, and I know you probably have a MacArthur commentary or you have, uh, you know, any number of other authors. 
and they'll tell you what the text says. But they don't give you the background of how they got that necessarily. Well, how do you know that's what it says? And how, how does it come from the text? An exegetical commentary deals with the actual Greek text and, and does the very things you're, you tried to do or, or hopefully achieved doing when you analyzed it. Then when you go to the expositional commentaries, they will add in illustrations and explanations and help you understand how to teach it. Uh, that's the best way I can say it. So you tell the difference by, are, are, <clears throat> are they dealing with the text itself or the, are they telling you what you should do because of what the text says? That's exposition. Number four, meditate on the text. I know meditation has a negative connotation because it's associated with Eastern religion. But that kind of meditation and biblical meditation is totally different. The meditation associated with you know, Eastern religion and, uh, you know, Buddhism, Hinduism, whatever. That is a process of emptying your mind of conscious thought, which is dangerous because then you open your mind to all sorts of demonic influence, at least that's possible. Biblical meditation is to, means filling your mind with biblical content. And thinking about it, trying to understand it, and trying to figure out how it applies. So when God told Joshua to meditate on the word of God in the first chapter of Joshua, that's what he's talking about. Take God's truth and dwell on it. Think about it. Meditation has to follow the analysis and the commentaries that or a check on your analysis, because you don't have anything to meditate on until you know what it says. But good sermons will come from the meditation part. So when you finish, say you start on Monday, I, some, some pastors take Mondays off. I never did. I take, would take Fridays off because I wanted to get all this technical work done before I took a day off. So I would start on Monday, and I would start analyzing the text and delve into the commentaries. By the end of the day, Tuesday, I should know everything I need to know about that, that text of Scripture. And a lot of times, I would take a, some hours off and just get a break before I would come back to the putting it back together as a sermon. And if you know what you're going to preach on and you know what it says early in the process your mind will dwell on that and you can go back to it you can be doing a dozen other things as a pastor driving to the hospital to visit somebody or you know waiting for everybody to show up on Sunday morning you know, you, your mind can go back to what you know that scripture said you're thinking about it think about it. I, I've had some of the the greatest inspiration for a sermon in the middle of the night when I wake up it just happens because my mind's been on it it's happened on the golf course. It's happened driving down the road. And sometimes you, you get this process done and you begin to form a sermon and you just get stuck. And I know there's been many times when I just get stuck and I just say, Lord, I don't know what to do with this. And the answer seems to always come through the process of just being patient, being submitted to his leadership, let the Holy Spirit in this process of meditation be your guide and it, it's never failed but by the time I needed to not it's not always the time I want but by the time I needed to be done uh, the information's there in my mind and here's where I put all them diagrams together too on a, on a bulletin board and back up and look at it and think about how it all connects that's a real helpful aspect of meditation let's move on to number five Identify a singular concept to preach. Identify a singular concept to preach. And I know Jim and David and others here probably heard me say this more than once and probably say it yourself. A sermon is not a shotgun blast of all sorts of ideas as those shotgun pellets 
represent. At you know, being propelled at people all at once, it's more a sermon need to be needs to be compared to a rifle, one projectile. That one thought will be determined by the text, not you. What does the text say? Now, when you outline it and make it applicable, it'll take on your personal uh, flavor, but the text and the verbs will tell you what the topic is. And when the topic changes, you stop. That's next week's sermon. <clears throat> so you're looking for a singular concept. And again, when I, when I put that diagram up on a bulletin board or whatever and look at it, that's what I'm looking at. Maybe there's three verbs there, but they're all on the same topic. As you read it through, you say he's talking about the same thing, but there's three verbs. Well, then the three verbs are telling you three things about the topic that you need to preach. So you identify that concept. <clears throat> the length of your sermon should be limited. And when I, I'm not talking about the, the length necessarily of the time you expend preaching it, but, but the length of the passage is what I'm getting at. How many verses you cover will be determined by whether it's all on the same topic. And, and sometimes you have a lot of verses on the same topic, and you have to break them apart. Uh, so you have the same topic for two weeks in a row. You might vary the, the wording of it. So identify that concept. And then once you know what the topic is and what that singular concept is that you want to preach then try to word that concept into a functional, an applicational idea. And express that idea as a full sentence. If you just go in there and your main and your topic or your prepositional statement, if you want to call it, in my day we were we called it the big idea the sermon idea, the sermon proposition. If you just say love, that's way too broad because the text you're dealing with is going to say specifics. So what, what are those specifics that can be expressed in one sentence? And this is going to take, and sometimes I would write the big idea of my sermon down 25 times. Sometimes I'll write it down once and I add it. Sometimes it'd be five times. It might be 25 times before I get one I'd, I liked. And they all basically say the same thing, but how do I say it in the most succinct way? Because if your big idea is a 25-word sentence, nobody's going to get it. So you got to keep it short and to the point. So you need to refine and edit to make the big idea or the main idea to assure brevity and practicality. I'd lead you to the next step, and that's this. Develop an applicational outline. There's four things that you can do when you begin to outline a sermon. Once you have that main idea, big idea, whatever you want to call it, once you have that, now you go back to the text from which you drew that big idea, and you look at the vain verbs and say, what do they say about the idea? So once you have the big idea, and you've, you've written it down, and you, you have the proposition for your sermon, now you want to have the main points. One, two, might be one, two, might be three, might even be four, but I try to keep it to three if possible for length considerations. There's only four things that can be done here they, those main points will either explain, prove, apply, or restate. That's the only four things they can do. So as you express those main points, which are drawn from the main verbs, or if you're in a historical passage, main aspects of the story, or the historical account, if your big idea is this, then what, what do you want to say about it? Do you want to explain that big idea? Do you want to prove it to your listeners? Or do you want to apply it? Now, here's the one, here's the one you need to aim for. 
let, if at all possible, your main points be action-oriented and applicational. That's when the congregation will be dialed in. If you say there's three things you need to know about the love of God, and I say, okay, what are they? If you say there's three things you need to do based on God's love, now that becomes very personal. So your main points, well, your big idea also, but your main points need to be applicational if at all possible. Now, on your... The folks that are here tonight have a, a handout sheet, and there's a, an outline there on Psalm 1. I think there's six verses in Psalm 1. And I have a, an outline there, which I'll put on the board here quickly in a minute. The title that I have on, on your paper for a sermon I preached on Psalm 1, 1 to 6 the title of it was The Pathway to Wisdom. Well, when you get down to verse 6, you get the breakdown in the last verse of the psalm. It's, it's a contrast between the godly man and the ungodly man. So you could, you could make your outline the godly man and uh, the ungodly. That'd be verse 1 to 3 and verses 4 to 6. And you could just tell your congregation what a godly man should be like and what a god ungodly man is like. That would be a, that would be a, a decent outline, especially if you're teaching the class. But how do we want to how can we make that more applicational? So that the congregation is dialed in. And by the way, you ever wonder what am I, how am I going to apply this sermon? You ever wonder that? When I was in seminary. Taking a homiletics class, one of my classmates asked the professor, well, where do you put the application? And the professor said, the whole sermon's an application. It's all the way through your sermon. I recently heard a preacher preach, had a great exposition of the text, did a good job interpreting it and explaining it. He gave no application. Then he got down to the end of the sermon, the conclusion, and he gave three quick sentences. Now, if you do this, this, and this because of that, that's the application he was done. He spent 30 minutes explaining the text, a minute and a half giving you the application. That's when the congregation goes away and says, what, what, what was that about? <laughs> How does that apply to me? It, 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 it's not in, it's, the application's not given in... In terms of any emphasis or anything will be retained. So you don't want to just wait to the conclusion. The conclusion should do that, but you should do it all the way through. So if I could find a, I think this green one works best. The idea I came up with when I preached this was wise men do what's right. Because Morality and wisdom go together in the Old Testament and in the book of Proverbs. And that's the way Psalm 1 begins, uh, because Psalms 2 is, you know, full of wisdom as well. And it's, you know, very close to what we often consider to be the book of wisdom, the book of Proverbs. And it starts out by saying, Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who does so on. So, with this kind of, of main idea, I have application built into the main idea. Now I want to build that application into the main points. So, and, and you guys can see it on your sheet. My first main point is don't walk with the ungodly. Don't walk with the ungodly. That's what it says. Stand in the stand, sit, walk. Those you see those in those first few verses, especially the word walk. That's verse one. Verse two, don't wander from God. 
that's verse two. And now you cut, and that's the, that's the godly man part. My third point had to do with the ungodly part, verses four to six, and they throw their life away, and that really comes right out of the text. So the third point was don't waste your life. And that was verses, I don't know, four to six, or this might have been two or three, I don't know. But the point is, this is applicational, this is applicational, these are applicational, these are action-oriented things that people listening need to do. Now, in some cases, it'll be things they need to believe because you're proving a point. I understand that. Prove, apply. Uh, in some cases, it's a difficult thing, and you've got to explain it. Brother Jim preached a sermon from Genesis here recently that I caught on uh, YouTube, and uh, it had to do with the whole gender issue. And he had to explain what the Scripture says. That was the key. That's what was needed. So his main points were explaining. In this case, what am I doing? I'm applying of applying this. David's main points on Sunday did a good job of applying this. By the way, I wish I'd have thought of that sermon title. <laughs> <laughs> Curveballs from God. I wish I'd have thought of that one. Now, that, that got people wanting to listen before you ever started. Okay. Guys, the difference between a, between a good preacher and the exceptional preacher is right here. Action-oriented, applicational outlines. If you just use informational outlines, you can do a good job explaining the text. God can use it. I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm saying... You want to move from being a good preacher to an exceptional preacher, you, you really need to get this concept. Your subpoints, once you do this, the subpoints A, B, and C under the main points will tell you something more about walking, or something more about not walking with the godly, something more about not wandering from God. That's where you really explain the text. You don't explain the text in the outline. The outline is the application. You explain the text at the subpoints. Any of you guys ever heard that before? What I just said? Ever thought about it? Most preachers never do. It took me several years to understand this. And this is how I needed to address people. And it took me a lot more years to refine it. It's not easy. And the problem with preachers that don't preach great sermons is they don't pay the price to preach them. Number six, or number seven actually. Find and insert good illustrations. By the way, there's an extra word in your... Hard copy, guys. Take the first good out. Find and insert good illustrations. Search diligently for good illustrations. They don't come easy. They seldom come out of a commentary. But sometimes they do. Sometimes good ones are there. Especially if it's a good commentary. This step will take, a, this step will take as much time almost as doing the outlining of your sermon. Because this alone, without good illustrations, will never stick in their minds. By an illustration, I mean a story, an anecdote, a statistic, a quote, especially anecdotes and stories, and especially things out of your own life where you learned that lesson. Now, you, can, you can tell them what happened in someone else's life, and that's good, but when you tell them about something that happened in your life and how you learned this, and you say, well, I remember a time in my life, everybody's going to stop right there and focus on you. You're not going to find all your illustrations there, but that's a great place. Personal stories 
are probably the best. Quotes, statistics, anecdotes. A lot of the a lot of the anecdotes you find in sermon illustration books, you don't know if they really happened or they were just somebody made them up. So I always would I would always avoid presenting those as if they really happened unless I could confirm it. If I know who, and to me, to confirm an antidote is is the person telling you what happened? Did they witness it or did they hear someone say it? What is the, I look for some confirmation. Otherwise, I just present it as here's a story. Don't know if it's true or not, but it illustrates a point. And so you know, be be honest with what you're using. I was taught to keep an illustration file in seminary on three by five cards. Never could do it. Wasted time for me. It's just me. I mean, other people probably can do it well. Uh, thank the Lord, shortly after I became a pastor, and was a pastor a few years, the photocopier machine became cheap enough to be purchased and used in the, in the local church. And so well, I found an illustration, but I just photocopied it, three-hole punch it, put it in a notebook, and I've got, I don't know, I've probably got... 15 or 20 big six-inch binder notebook books full of illustrations I photocopied over the years. Uh, and I've also probably got 10 or 12 illustration books on my shelf that I consult. And sometimes I consult all those books for a sermon. But when I found my illustrations in the three-ring binders, I did it topicless. I don't have to read all those. I can go to a topic I'm looking for. And when I go to those illustration books on the shelf, I look up the topic I'm preaching on. I don't read the whole book, obviously. Today, you can find you can find about anything you want on the internet. I don't even know if I'd go to the trouble of doing the three ring binders today. You can bookmark stuff. You can you can you know if you do want to put it in the three ring binder, you can find it on the internet. You can print it off, put it in a binder if you want. A lot of times I'll, I'll find it, print it off, and put it right in my sermon outline so I don't have to retype it. And when I get to that point in the sermon, I just note it and then it's just another page laying here. Your listeners will remember a good illustration far longer than they'll ever remember your outline. Your outline will keep them focused on what they need to do. And this, this outline right here is going to lead, lead to a conclusion which you want to make very short and something that summarizes all of this. If they can just walk away with that conclusion, you've done your job. But if they don't have some, some information that's illustrative of that, that, that gives them examples and makes it practical to hang that conclusion on, it's going in a few hours. People remember illustrations I've used sometimes for years. They'll say, remember when you told that story? I, I, I forgot what it was, you know. But that's what really solidifies the information in the listener's mind for retention. Number eight, construct a powerful introduction and conclusion. David did a good job on that because of that whole curveball thing. And I'm sitting there thinking, it is hard to hit a curveball. I got hit in the jaw as a freshman in high school because I was struck out by a pitcher throwing a curveball. And the next time I faced that pitcher, I said, I'm not going to move. That ball's going to come over the plate. I'm going to hit it. And he threw a fastball and hit me in the jaw and it never broke. So <laughs> I, I, that all went through my mind as he's talking about the curveball. And sometimes, we're waiting for what God serves us in life to come right across the plate and it hits us in the jaw, you know? So, that got my attention right off. Your introduction needs to get the attention of your audience immediately. You can use that illustration. That's what David did about the curveballs, an illustration. So, illustration goes in and Introduction. I always aim for one powerful illustration for each main point, and one for the introduction, and possibly one for the conclusion. And really, the best thing is to start with one up here that gets their attention, it's not resolved, and come back to it down here. That really fastens it in people's mind. Your introduction needs to get attention, number one. Number two, 
It needs to specify a need to listen to the rest of the sermon. Now, the whole thing about the curveball got her attention on Sunday, but then David went on to explain, you know, we don't know what God, we don't know what God's doing. We live by faith, and we have to live our life and be faithful, and, and sometimes we don't know the importance of what happens. Sometimes things, bad things happen. We don't know why. Oh, now we've moved from getting my attention to saying, hey, I need to listen to this sermon. Attention and develop the need. Then once you've developed the need, the second part of the introduction, you're here to reveal the main idea. And the main idea answers the question, what do I need to do based on what the preacher just told me I needed in my life, or what the, the issue or the circumstance or the problem that I face, uh, that we all face, here's a solution. And then, then we learn more and more about the solution as we go through, and we get to the end and we pound the, the solution into their minds. One singular concept. You can't do it with two or three. It gets, everybody gets tangled up and confused. I tell my wife, don't talk to me when I'm doing this. I don't multitask. I don't. I know this generation does. Mine did not. I do not. Uh, I focus on one thing at a time. And if I focus on two, I get a little frustrated. If I have to focus on three or four, I get downright miserable. I'm just not set up that way. Your listeners can multitask on many levels, I'm sure, but you don't want them to do it. You want them to be with you. When it comes to the conclusion, I look for one, one statement that draws it all together in a powerful concluding statement. Your conclusion is a verdict. Here is everything I've been telling you to do since the sermon started till the end, and this is it right here as far as what you have to do. And you're drawing together these applications into a final verdict. What might it be here? Wise men do what's right. It might be something as simple as, look, you know what you should do? Do it. That's a simple, powerful statement. That's very simple. You probably want to elaborate a little bit more than that. But that's, that's the idea. The conclusion is a verdict. Go out with a bang and do not fizzle out. Too many pastors, by the time they get to the conclusion, they just kind of fizzle out. And the worst thing in the world you can do at a conclusion is go back. I mean, it's helpful to go back and review those main points, but don't go back and review the whole sermon. Don't give them another five or ten minutes telling them what you told them. Give them a quick overview, reminder, a verdict, Powerful illustration, and you're done. As the old saying goes for preachers, I know we've heard it way back in my days of seminary, three admonitions. Stand up, speak up, and shut up. And not knowing how to end a sermon has caused more people to go away, bored, instead of going away motivated than anything else. It's the pastor said some good things, and then he beat a dead horse for another 20 minutes. You don't want to do that. Number nine, rehearse the sermon. We're almost done. Number nine, rehearse the sermon. We've got add good visuals on screen, so I, I don't know. That was my mistake. <laughs> so number nine should be rehearse the sermon. I rehearse my sermons in my mind. Some pastors will go into an empty auditorium and preach their whole sermon to nobody. I could never get motivated enough to do that, and then I would do a poor job, and then I'd be, I'd be discouraged about it. But in my mind, I preach it in powerful way. <laughs> but I can't get motivated to preach powerfully to the wall over there. So I just rehearse it all in my mind, go over and over. Now, how, how do I want to say this? How do I want to emphasize that? I imagine myself standing in the pool, but how am I going to communicate this? But... Rehearse it, and then for crying out loud, edit it. Take out the stuff that's not pertinent to what you're saying. 
Might be a good story, might be a good illustration, but if it doesn't do something that explains those concepts, leave it out. Plan your gestures. I, I never plan my gestures because I, they just come natural to me. Use my arms, I walk around, I, I vary my voice quality, or my voice uh, audibility, what's the word? Volume. Volume. Voice inflection. Don't be monotone. The worst thing in the world is to have a good sermon and get up there and deliver it in a boring way. If you can't get excited about what you have to say, your congregation is not going to get excited about it. They're probably not even going to get it. Now, Jim here can do that effectively and not worry about it because he has a really great voice quality. Uh, and just, just a demeanor about him that some other preachers don't have. Everybody's different. What, what works for you? It doesn't necessarily, you don't have to scream and yell at people, but you can elevate the volume a little bit, you can bring it down a little bit, you can, you can slow it down. Sometimes I emphasize things by speeding it up. And I say about five or six things and they're all, they're all said very quickly. Nobody's going nobody's to catch all six of them, but by the time I say six synonyms for something or six expressions in a quick way, they realize this is important. <laughs> and I might go back and say it slow. Gauge the time. If you have three points and you put in the illustration and you do the work in the introduction and you've got a conclusion, three points is going to be over 30 minutes. I try not to preach more than 35 minutes. Only the exceptional can go 45. Sometimes I go 45 and I think I should have not have done it. Sometimes you get away with it and you can do it effectively. Sometimes you start losing people. You don't want to start losing people. Edit, edit, edit. Get it down. Go for it. When you're starting out, go for 25 minutes because it'll become 35. And you'll learn when you look at this, when it's all done and you look at all the illustrations, you're going to learn to look at it and say, uh-oh, that's going to be too long. But when you're starting out, that's, that's kind of hard to do. Got this quote from, uh, thank you, Robbie. Nothing like a good tech guy to clean up your mistakes. I don't know now where, I, I had a quote on there about uh, most churchgoers prefer a sermon of 20 to 40 minutes. I guarantee you most of them prefer 20. According to research done by LifeWay Research, LifeWayResearch.com. And those same churchgoers are six times more likely than preachers to say that their church's typical sermon goes over an hour. You may not go an hour, but it feels like an hour to them if you don't do it effectively. Or you did go an hour and you think you went 30 minutes. So either, somehow you've got you to clean that up. Uh, and it, 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 it comes back to the preacher, not the listener. Last thing, you add good visuals. Add good visuals. Before the PowerPoints and all that, I would sometimes use an overhead, which is very cumbersome, so I didn't do it a lot. So I started putting my outlines in the bulletin for this reason. And then when the PowerPoint uh, capability came along, I started using PowerPoint. Now some people get enamored with the PowerPoint, and they put so much stuff on there, and they put so many verses on there, and, they, and people start getting overwhelmed with all this stuff. And, and, and worse yet, they'll, they'll put a whole bunch on one slide and make it very small print. Nobody can read it past 30 years old. You know, it's, it's a waste of time. So keep your visuals simple. Use large fonts. Know what font works when your computer once you project it and how readable it is for the last row. And I'd sometimes go to the auditorium and check that out if I was unsure even in the middle of the week. You can project a picture of a person that you're telling a story about. You, you definitely need to 
put statistics up there so they can take a moment to write them down. Otherwise, you just speak them. They, they, they can't remember what the statistics were. Uh, there's things that need to be on that screen. We're, we live in a generation where everybody's more visual than we've ever been. People don't learn very well just hearing these days. There's another slide, I think, Robbie. Uh, here it is. He's got it up. Visuals. And I took this from uh, visual website, I think it is. Yeah, elearningindustry.com. And uh, this lady, Dana, and I won't even try to pronounce her last name, gives us the reasons to use visuals. Visuals help people store information longer, make communication quicker and simpler. One picture definitely is worth a thousand words. One picture flashed on the screen for a few seconds will communicate way more than you can do talking about it for five minutes. Many times. Makes communication quicker and simpler. Visuals aid better comprehension. We remember better what we see. Just like we remember better if it's a story or something applicational and not just those main points or even a subpoint. Visuals act as stimulators of our emotions. They drive motivation. And unsuitable visuals, she says, equals unhappy learners. So use those PowerPoints. It's difficult. It might be a, maps are great for helping you f present a context. If you're teaching through the book of Acts, you're going to have to use some maps. If you're teaching about the Exodus, great to have maps, route. Those things really help. But pictures, like if you're talking about Mount Sinai and you've got a picture of Mount Sinai, that sticks it in their mind. So use those visual, visuals. And then... Make sure you project this, too. Make sure, you, you, maybe you start out with a picture of somebody you're telling about, a story about, or maybe you're using statistics you put up there, whatever. You come down to here, and you move to here. Now, if possible, put in visuals here of, in, of the same as what you started with. But those are hard to, that's hard to keep up with those. So I make sure I project this, this, and this, and this. So the first screen will be this, the second screen will be this, the third time I project the outline will be this, and the fourth time I project the outline will be this. So they see it over and over and over and over again the time you're done. So just take those things and use them. Everybody's different. But don't just do what's easy and comfortable for you. Think about, here's ways to, you're not going to do all 10 of these the first week if you're not doing them. You're probably doing most of them anyway, but, you know, there's some to work on. But if you're doing none of them, you do what you can and start there. And I think they will help. Now, have you guys got a question or a comment? You're very quiet, except Jim had one question. You got another question. <clears throat> Jay, you've alluded to tonight, and you've even used some examples inadvertently in your own teaching. I heard a wise man say one time that preaching is theater. You can get carried away with that, obviously, and it can become too much. How do you know where that line is? There's got to be a way that you gauge that properly. I, I don't really know how to tell you where the line is, but I, as, as someone watching someone preach, if there's no theater, I don't like it. <laughs> if it's all theater, I don't like it. So there's somewhere in between. Uh, when you say theater, I, I, I think you're talking about presentation. Yes. And presentation has to be good. It, it doesn't matter how, how, how well you have constructed the content and how well you set it, if you do not make it stick in their minds, if it's not retained, if it, if it doesn't change their life. A sermon has not achieved its purpose unless it's applied to the listener's life. A sermon doesn't achieve its purpose because they walk out the door and say, that was a great sermon today, Pastor. It only achieves its purpose if their life changes some way. Or at least they realize it shouldn't change. And sometimes you, you just 
we have to stop and realize we've got to be better communicators. Now, just, <laughs> I used to listen to a preacher years ago, he came off into my seminary, and he became known as a preacher who preached skyscraper sermons. You ever heard of that? Well, skyscraper sermon is one story upon another. <laughs> That's all he did, he told stories. He didn't deal with the text. He had some great stories. I still remember some of them, but it didn't tell me anything. You didn't connect them to a text. So you've got to have the content and the story to really communicate. And you, everybody has to draw their own line there. When I was a younger preacher, I was very monotone. So I would have to go through my outline and, and highlight a point where I was going to lift my volume a little bit. And I get to that and I know I'm going to say something, I'm going to raise my volume a little bit. I, never, I haven't done that for years. Like it just comes natural once you start doing it. You, you vary for emphasis. So that's not theater in the sense of the negative sense, but it's theater in a positive, present, presentational sense. Good question. Anybody else want to throw one out there? Yeah. In First uh, Timothy three two, it, it, you mentioned. Um, that in the beginning, but it said anyone who aspires to be the position of overseer in the ESV. Um, I've got two questions on that. One, how do you know that your desire to do it is not of yourself and of the Holy Spirit, for one? And then two, how do you know that you are capable of doing it? Answer the first part of the question, how do you know it's of the Lord and not just you? If it's of the Lord, it will persist over a long time. If it's just you, it won't. Uh, how many times have us guys, we like, our, we like our gadgets, tools, guns, whatever it is, and you get a new gadget, a new tool, a new gun, or maybe even a new car, then you just you really wanted it, and then you get it, and it's like, that's not that's not so great. You don't care about it so much. The law of diminishing value. I'm sorry. What was that? The law of diminishing value. Yeah. But if it's a Holy Spirit desire put in your heart, you're not. You're, it's going to be there next week, the next month, the next year. If it's just you, you'll find a reason why. Next week, well, maybe that's not such a good idea. And you might have that doubt somewhere along the line, but it'll still persist. The Holy Spirit's not going to be inconsistent. That's what I do. That's what I think of. That's what it became for me early on when I decided to go into vocational ministry. It, it was just a powerful desire God had put in my heart. And, it, and the desire that the Spirit puts on your heart equates with the gift he gives you to do it. So if you have the gift of teaching, you're going to desire to preach. Now, the second part of the question again. Remind me what that was. How do you know that you are capable? Because I can want to sing. doesn't mean I'm able to. That's why there's no gift of singing. <laughs> but there is a gift of teaching. Preaching. And if, if the Spirit gives you the desire, and it's quite likely He's given you the gift, and you just haven't used it, so you, you can't confirm it, but if you follow the desire, then you realize you can do it. Because if it's a spiritual gift, the Spirit's going to empower you to do it. You don't know if you don't do it. That's why in Romans 12... He starts talking about the gifts. He says, you know, if you have the gift of teaching, teach, basically. You understand what the, the best literal translation is. If you have the gift of leading, lead. If you have the gift of giving, give liberally. You know, because if you think you have that gift, do it. And in the doing of it, you are blessed and others are blessed. And the desire to do it increases. Then the gift is present and God's empowering the gift. I've run over a lot of people over the years that desired to be preachers that never were. 
somewhere along the line, quite possibly they were just disobedient to the calling, but I think in many cases, just aspired to do it. Like, I, I want to be a fireman, I want to be a truck driver, I want to be a preacher, you know, I just, I think that'd be great, I'd love to do that, I think I'll do it. But it wasn't of the Lord. So it doesn't persist and they don't end up doing it. I wish I could answer it more specifically. I hope that helps. This has turned into a longer video than I anticipated. <laughs> but I'm here to answer any other questions you have. And, uh, you know, the editor might need to edit it. I don't know. <laughs> Anybody else have a comment or a question? Well, thank you for being here, guys. And I appreciate it very much. It makes it so much easier for me to talk to live people. Like I said, if I'm talking to that wall, and Robbie knows because I've done some videos and it was just me and him and uh, talking into a microphone, and that gets really difficult for me. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Pastor Dave, and thank you, Fellowship Baptist Church, for giving us the, the venue to do this. And uh, appreciate it so much. God bless all of you. Thank you.